Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for January 2015, the start of a new year. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature for the last month and discuss what caught our eye. So let's start with critical care medicine, the relationship among obesity, nutrition status and mortality in the critically ill. The relationship between obesity and outcomes from critical illness is of increasing interest due to the problems of obesity-related disease in wealthy countries and the conflicting evidence showing worse, the same, or better outcomes associated with high BMI. This study incorporates nutritional status into the equation to see if it provides a clearer relationship between obesity and outcome. That is, does malnutrition account at least partially to mortality following critical illness in obese patients. This single-centre observational study examined 6,518 adult patients admitted to surgical or medical ICUs and the relationship between nutritional status, and that was defined as non-specific malnutrition, protein energy malnutrition or well-nourished, BMI, and they had classifications of less than 18, which is underweight, 18.5 to 25, normal, 25 to 30, overweight, greater than, or 30 to 39.9, obesity class 1 and 2, and greater than 40, which was obesity class 3. And the relationship between those two and all-cause 30-day mortality. They report that BMI, 5% were underweight, 36% were normal weight, 31% 31% were overweight, 23% had class 1 or 2 obesity, and 5% had class 3 obesity. In terms of nutrition, there was non-specific malnutrition present in 56% of patients, protein energy malnutrition in 12%, with only 32% well-nourished. In terms of outcome, 30-day mortality was 19.1%, 90-day was 26.6%. Obesity was a significant predictor of improved 30-day mortality after multivariate adjustment. So that's in keeping with some of the previous studies which have shown this obesity paradox. That is, obese patients seem to do better. However, the Obesity Mortality Association was confounded by malnutrition. That is, obese patients with malnutrition have worse outcomes than well-nourished obese patients and the decreased risk of mortality observed in obese patients compared to non-obese patients disappears when adjusted for nutrition status. So what does this tell us? Well, firstly, that over half of the population in this ICU was overweight or obese and over half had some type of malnutrition. And overall, obese patients do have good outcomes but this effect is attenuated by nutrition status. So perhaps nutrition status, not BMI, is what we should be focusing on. Okay, moving on to JAMA. We have chlorhexidine bathing and healthcare associated infections, a randomized clinical trial. So does daily chlorhexidine bathing, and that is once daily bathing of all patients with disposable cloths impregnated with 2% 2% chlorhexidine reduce healthcare associated infections compared to standard care, which is washing with non antimicrobial cloths. 
It's difficult to perform trials involving microbiological flora in health centres and ICUs due to the environmental wash-in and wash-out effects of the intervention. This study addressed this by assigning ICUs, not patients, in its cluster design and crossed each ICU over three times with 10-week periods of intervention or control followed by two-week periods of control to allow for washout. Patients admitted during the washout periods were excluded from the study. So this single-centre, pragmatic, multiple crossover cluster randomised clinical trial involved 9,340 patients admitted to five ICUs at Vanderbilt University Tertiary Care Medical Centre. They report no difference in the primary outcome, which was a composite of CLABSI, VAP, catheter-associated UTI, or Clostridium difficile infection. The rate was 2.86 episodes per thousand patient days in the Chlorhex group versus 2.9 in the control group, and that's a rate difference of minus 0 0.04 per thousand patient days, which is not significant at all. There was no difference in secondary outcomes, although VAP rates were higher in the chlorhex group compared to control with confidence intervals of 0.0013 to 0.999. There was a significant decrease in blood culture contamination but not healthcare acquired infection which occurred in the cardiovascular ICU during the chlorhex periods. And there was a non-significant reduction in hospital mortality observed during the chlorhex bathing period, and that went from 9.25% to 8.18% p-value 0.07. This became significant in post-hoc as-treated analyses, but was not significant after adjusting for baseline variables. There are some important issues discussed in the accompanying editorial. Firstly, the ICU staff were not blinded, there was no monitoring of adherence to care practice, and there was no intracluster correlation. The composite endpoint is open to challenge, as the evidence for efficacy of chlorhex bathing washing on the last three outcomes of the primary outcome is weak. The overall healthcare acquired infection rate was relatively low and this must be considered if applying results to other ICUs. So that is, this is a high-performing ICU or centre in terms of healthcare-associated infections already at baseline. Active surveillance to detect cross-transmission of multidrug-resistant organisms was not performed. The results contrast with previous studies, so there was CLEMO study of 7,726 patients, 6 ICU cluster crossover trial, Chlorhex was associated with reduced VRE and CLABSI, although in that study much of the effect was due to a reduction in skin colonisation rather than a reduction in infection, and that's what they saw in the cardiovascular ICU results in this study. They also contrast with the Huang study of 74,256 patients where a universal decolonization strategy, which included chlorhexidine, led to a reduction in MRSA blood cultures and healthcare acquired bloodstream infections. Finally, 
There is a risk in these universal strategies, including chlorhexidine resistance, with evidence of that conferring antibody resistance in Staph aureus and carbapenemase producing Klebsiella pneumonia. So there is some concern about using chlorhexidine on all patients and having adverse effects. So in conclusion, the editors state that widespread adoption of daily chlorhexidine bathing is not indicated at this point, a position also articulated in the 2014 Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of American Guidelines. So if you are an ICU that uses chlorhexidine daily bathing with washcloths, this is something that has to be reconsidered. Still on JAMA, we have got protocolised sedation versus usual care in paediatric patients mechanically ventilated for acute respiratory failure, a randomised clinical trial. And this is the Restore study investigators and the PALSI network. So protocolised sedation aimed at lightning sedation where possible has been shown to improve outcomes in critically ill adults, but there is a lack of evidence in children. This cluster randomized trial enrolled 2,500 children from 31 US PICUs and compared a goal-directed sedation protocol, and that included targeted sedation, arousal assessments, extubation readiness testing, sedation adjustment every eight hours, and sedation weaning to standard care. They report that there were baseline differences. Targeted sedation group were younger, with lower PRISM 312 score mortality risk and more bronchiolitis. The primary outcome of duration of mechanical ventilation was not different 6.5 days in the intervention versus 6.5 days in the control. There was no difference in sedation related adverse events. There was more post extubation strider in the intervention group 7 versus 4%, p value of 0.03. There was less stage 2 or worse immobility pressure ulcers in the intervention group. The exploratory analyses revealed the intervention group had less opioids, less sedative classes of drugs in overall, and more days awake and calm while intubated. However, they also had more days with a reported pain score of greater than 4 or agitation. So where does this leave us? Well, the accompanying editorial suggests that both groups received similar amounts of sedation and opioid, so arguably the protocol failed, or the control group received targeted care as well. Either way, with morphine the major opioid in the intervention group, the resultant bioaccumulation may have had an effect, particularly when the control group received predominantly fentanyl and dexmedetomidine. So that's suggesting that overall the two groups didn't actually receive that different a treatment. The intervention algorithm was complex, which may have had adverse effects on compliance and efficacy. It also divided sedation into three stages of illness with deeper levels indicated or suggested at the start, and that's a step that may not be necessary. So overall, in these US teaching PICUs, there was no clear advantage of targeted care over usual care, although there were differences in the subsequent sedation experience in terms of wakefulness, pain and agitation. 
Due to the complexity of trial design, the reason for these differences are not clear, and we're left still a little uncertain about the role for targeted sedation and if it can lead to better experience or better outcomes. Moving on to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we have timing of low tidal volume ventilation and intensive care unit mortality in acute respiratory distress syndrome, a prospective cohort study. This multi-site prospective cohort study evaluated the association of initial tidal volume and change in tidal volume over time with mortality in 482 patients with ARDS from 13 ICUs. They report primary exposure was tidal volume received while ventilated, and that was mils per kilo predicted body weight, as a time varying exposure with two parts, the initial tidal volume after IRDS onset and the time varying tidal volume related to this. There was an overall ICU mortality in this cohort of 35%. Initial tidal volume was less than or equal to 6.5 mils per kilo in only 32% of patients. The overall median tidal volume for the 11,500 twice daily recordings was 6.6 .6, and that ranged from 5.9 to 8. The unadjusted analysis of patients with initial tidal volume greater than 6.5 mils per kilo demonstrated a decrease tidal volume during the course of ventilation was associated with a significantly approved survival, p-value 0.008. So if you started high and it came down over time, you did better. Multivariate analysis revealed an increase of 1 mil per kilo tidal volume was associated with a 23% increase in the risk of ICU mortality with a hazard ratio of 1.23, 95% confidence intervals of 1.06 to 1.44 and a p-value of 0.008. Multivariate analysis also revealed that during the course of ventilation, a 1 mil per kilo predicted body weight increase in tidal volume from the initial setting was associated with a 15% increase in risk of ICU mortality. Finally, the absolute risk difference in ICU mortality comparing various example profiles of initial and subsequent tidal volume was calculated. So compared to a prototype 6 mils per kilo tidal volume for 8 days for 8 RDS, there was an absolute increase in mortality of 7.2% for 10 mil per kilo tidal volume and 2.7% for 8 mil per kilo tidal volume. And this effect was greater when 10 mils per kilo was received in the first four days rather than the last four days over this eight-day prototype period. So overall, this study suggests that initial and subsequent variation from a low tidal volume ventilation strategy in ARDS is associated with worse outcomes. That is, that the timely administration of protective ventilation is important, and this is analogous to antibiotics, fluid resuscitation and source control. It also shows that the initial settings of a protective ventilation strategy is not occurring in the majority, and it was 68% of cases. So that is definitely food for thought.
Okay, back to critical care medicine. We have a multi-center, randomized, placebo-controlled, phase three study of pyridoxylated hemoglobin polyoxyethylene in distributive shock, the Phoenix study. So this RCT of the hemoglobin-based nitric oxide scavenger pyridoxylated hemoglobin solution in patients with vasopressor-dependent distributive shock, so this is patients who had two or more service criteria, were noradrenaline-dependent and had organ dysfunction despite fluid resuscitation, was stopped due to increased mortality in the treatment arm after 377 patients were enrolled. So they report similar baseline characteristics between the treatment and control groups. 28-day mortality of 44.3% in the treatment group versus 37.6% in the control group. That's odds ratio of 1.29 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.85 to 1.95, so pretty broad. In subgroups with higher Apache 2 scores, there was significantly higher mortality with the treatment group, 60.9% versus 39.2%. And survivors had longer vasopressor-free time with the treatment group, 21.3 versus 19.7 days. So despite pre-existing Phase 2 evidence showing promise, this Phase 3 trial fails to show benefit and reports increased mortality with the use of a synthetic haemoglobin-based nitric oxide scavenger. The authors discuss reasons for this, including the assumption in the trial design that vasopressor requirement is a surrogate indicator of higher nitric oxide levels, and this was actually shown to be incorrect in this study, that is, that nitric oxide levels were similar to those reported in prior studies of patients with all degrees of sepsis. They did find a non-significant relationship between baseline nitric oxide level and treatment effect, that is patients with higher nitric oxide levels had lower mortality rates with treatment and the converse was that patients with lower nitric oxide levels had higher mortality rates. The difference in mortality observed in the study was due to multi-organ failure, raising the possibility that nitric oxide may have a positive effect in later stage of the evolution of sepsis. They conclude that further trials should select patients more carefully, that is based on a better understanding of the possible benefit and harm due to the effects of nitric oxide during the course of sepsis and the effect of baseline levels. Either way, it looks like there's a lot of work to be done in this area if it's going to become a clinically useful drug. In intensive care medicine, we have type 3 procollagen is a reliable marker of ARDS-associated lung fibroproliferation. So the pulmonary fibroproliferation observed after the inflammatory phase of ARDS is associated with lung fibrosis and poor longer-term outcomes. The diagnosis of this phase through lung biopsy and histological examination is invasive and shows an incidence of approximately 50% in ARDS patients that have been biopsied. If a therapy such as corticosteroids is to be utilized to treat this, it is important to be able to detect fibroproliferation early and less invasively. Now, pulmonary fibroplasts produce procollagen, 
a precursor on collagen. The NT part of procollagen 3, which results from the enzymatic cleavage of procollagen by specific proteases in the extracellular space, is used as a marker of collagen synthesis. N-terminal peptide type 3 procollagen, NTPCP3, is elevated in blood and BAL samples in ARDS patients and is associated with increased mortality. This prospective observational study investigates the levels of NTPCP3 from BALs in 32 patients with moderate to severe ARDS for at least five days who had lung biopsy and establishes the relationship between the biomarker and fibroproliferation. 19 of 32 patients had histopathological evidence of fibroproliferation and NTPCP3 levels were higher in these patients. In addition, a validation cohort of 51 patients with persistent ARDS had BAL NTPCP3 measured at day 5. Overall, they report a threshold of 9 micrograms per litre had the highest accuracy for diagnosing fibroproliferation. That's a sensitivity of 89.5%, specificity 92.3%, and was associated with a higher 60-day mortality, 69 versus 17%. The authors conclude that measuring NTPCP3 at day 7 in ARDS and using 9 micrograms per litre identifies a cohort with lung fibroproliferation in ARDS and they suggest that NTPCP3 from a BAL could be used as a trigger in future trials of corticosteroids or other treatments aimed at attenuating the effects of fibroproliferative ARDS. So that's a very interesting development. In critical care medicine, extracorporeal CO2 removal in hypercapnic patients at risk of non-invasive ventilation failure, a matched cohort study with historical controls. So the use of ECCO2R devices in respiratory failure is of increasing interest thanks to the emergence of better technology and devices like the Nova Lung, Pulp, Hemalung, Hemadec, Belco. This includes the role of extracorporeal CO2 removal in acute exacerbations of COPD, either to avoid invasive ventilation or reduce duration of invasive ventilation. This matched cohort study examines the effect of extracorporeal CO2 removal plus NIV as 25 patients compared to NIV alone in 21 patients with acute hypercapnic respiratory failure extracorporeal CO2 removal was added if there was a risk of failure with NIV alone and that was defined as a pH of less than 7.3 CO2 greater than 20% increase uh, respiratory rate greater than 30 or use of accessory muscles ECCO2 was delivered using the DCAP smart hemodec via a 14 French femoral cannula and continued until observations normalized for at least 12 hours they report that the ECCO2 removal was associated with significant improvements in CO2, oxygen, pH and respiratory rates, so it fixed the numbers. The primary endpoint, risk of endotracheal intubation, was three times higher with NIV only versus ECCO2 removal and NIV. Hazard ratio of 0.27, 95% confidence intervals of 0.07 to 0.98 and a p-value of 0.047. The intubation rate was 12% versus 33%, although that wasn't statistically different. 
52% of patients experienced adverse events relating to ECCO2 removal. That included six clots in the circuit, three pump or membrane failures, one hematuria, one retroperitoneal hemorrhage, one groin hemorrhage, and one vein perforation. And a hospital mortality was 8% in the ECCO2 versus 35% in NIV alone. So overall, this sets the stage for an RCT with similar criteria to answer the question, is the optimal treatment for type 2 respiratory failure in COPD NIV alone with its potential increased risk of intubation and associated adverse events, or NIV plus ECCO2 removal with the associated risks of ECCO2? That would be a really interesting study. Okay, prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonia and ventilator-associated conditions, a randomized controlled trial with subglottic secretion suctioning. So the benefit of subglottic suctioning in intubated patients through a reduction of VAP is debatable, and the effect of baseline VAP rate and the change in definition of VAP to ventilator-associated events, ventilator-associated complications, um, has added to this uncertainty. This single centre study randomised 352 patients intubated with the Teleflex Isis TM endotracheal tube, which is the Teleflex product, uh, and expected to require 48 hours or longer mechanical ventilation to subglottic suction or no suctioning. The ICUs involved had implemented VAP bundles since 2009, and that included semi-recumbent position of at least 30 degrees, oral care, and teeth brushing with chlorhexidine 0.2%, followed by the application of 1% chlorhexidine gel, control of the cuff pressure of the endotracheal tube between 20 and 30 centimetres of water, and daily assessment of sedation. And they had an average VAP rate decreasing from 39.1 per thousand ventilator days to 12 per thousand ventilator days in 2011 with this protocol. So the outcomes reported used the classic VAP definition, the new CDC definition of ventilator-associated complication, and the new CDC definition of infection-related ventilator-associated complication, or IVAC. So the groups were similar at baseline, and the results of suctioning versus non-suctioning was classic VAP, decreased incidence of 8.8% compared to 17.6%, decreased uh, VAP per ventilator days from 19.8 per thousand to 9.6 per thousand, also significant, and logistic re regression confirmed a protective effect with odds ratios of 0.54 and 95% confidence intervals of 0.24 to 0.87. However, when the new CDC definitions of ventilator-associated complication, VAC or IVAC, were used, there was no difference in rate. So it was for VAC, it was 22.9% down to 22%, with no difference in prevalence, 24.9 per thousand ventilator days for suctioning and 27.2 for no suctioning with a p-value of 0.56. In terms of IVAC, there was no difference in the infection rate uh, it, it went from 11% down to 8.2%, but that wasn't significant, p-value 0.47. The antibiotic consumption between the two groups was the same. Well, eight days down to seven days, non-significant. So 
There are also many secondary outcomes, but the overall, the main point of interest is that subglottic suctioning was associated with a decrease in the older definition of VAP, but not of the new definition of IVAC or VAC, and the duration of antibiotic or the antibiotic consumption was the same. So what does this mean? Well, the traditional definition of VAP is flawed, hence the rationale for replacing it. So should we just ignore that as an unreliable outcome? and focus on IVAC and say that there's no benefit. The authors mount an argument against this, but it remains a major issue, and I think you're going to have to make up your own mind. So lastly, we have in critical care medicine the influence of N3 polyunsaturated fatty acids enriched lipid emulsions on nosocomial infections and clinical outcomes in critically ill patients, the ICU lipid study. So the immune role of lipid emulsions in PN, specifically N3 fish oil uh, boofers and N6 boofers, which is soybean oil, has overshadowed their intended nutritional role. This prospective multi-center RCD conducted in 17 Spanish ICUs enrolled 159 patients expected to require PN for five days or greater and randomised them to PN plus 10% fish oil at 0.1 gram per kilo body weight per day or PN alone. And they report that the groups were similar at baseline with the exception of more pancreatitis in the fish oil group. The primary outcome of nosocomial infection during the first 28 days was lower in the fish oil group compared to the standard group that was 21% versus 37%, p-value of 0.035. The predicted time free of infection was prolonged in the fish oil group, 21 days versus 16 days, and there was no significant differences in ICU, hospital, and six-month mortality. There was no individual nosocomial infection that was significantly reduced and accounted for the treatment effect. The authors point out that that may be due to a small sample size. So overall, this is a positive study, suggesting N3 boofers are beneficial in critical patients requiring prolonged PN. This may not be enough to change practice due to sample size mainly, but it does renew interest in the area. So that's it for Critique Journal Club for January 2015. Come to the website and look at the articles in more detail or read them yourself. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Thank you.